Good morning again. As the ushers come to take the offering, I'm always reminded um, they're guiding us in an act of worship wherein we learn to trust God with what he's entrusted to us, and that's such an important spiritual discipline. So I'm glad we get to partake of that together. I'm always glad to do that with you. <clears throat> it's been a couple weeks. I just want to say thank you on behalf of my family. It is, it's a gift for us to get away during after Christmas Eve services, and we go and spend a little time with our family down in Texas, which is really uh, a rich time. But man, a preacher's got to preach, and I just, you know, I, I start to get itchy when I haven't preached in a couple weeks. My kids, the conversation with them start to sound like I'm just preaching at them, so they're like, get back to church already. So thanks for having me back. It's good to be back. Um, let me say to you, let me point your attention, before we dive into God's word, to something coming up in the life of our church we want you to know about. Uh, twice a year we do a baptism service. Let me remind you that baptism is a way that we proclaim that we've received new life in Christ, right? So when we go under the water and we come and rise again, we're saying that Christ has taken us out of death and brought us into life. And not just into life, but into life in a family of faith. And so we want to encourage you, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've just become one, or if you've been walking with them for years and you've never been baptized, this is something the scriptures call us to as a proclamation of our faith in Christ. And so we do this numerous times a year. We'd love for you to participate with us uh, on February 9th when we have that time together of worship and share your story and your testimony. In order to do that, we need you to know that on February 2nd, we have a baptism class. And that class is designed to answer any questions you might have about baptism to give us an opportunity to hear for us to hear how you came to faith in Jesus and why you're prepared to be baptized. And so we would love for you to join us in that. 1230 Sunday, February 2nd, we want to make sure that you're aware of it, prepared for it, and can be praying about if, uh, if God is calling you forward into that. All right, let's pray together, and let's dive into God's Word. Lord, we love you. We love your Word. It's authoritative, and so we're glad to come underneath its authority today. We pray that you would instruct us. Holy Spirit, oh, how I want us to be a God-taught people, not just a, not a humanly-taught people. And so would you use me now? to impart your truth, guard my mouth, to speak what is true and helpful and right. Would you prepare our hearts to receive your word? We thank you for the worship that we've gotten to partake of, to prepare our hearts, to set our eyes on you, to remind us that you are God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, worthy of all worship and adoration. We pray now that as we put our minds to your word, that we would find that our minds are engaged, our hearts are compelled Jesus, to see you for who you are, so we might worship you as you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, over Christmas, while I was away, uh, I got a chance to read uh, this great book by Nabil Qureshi that I'd highly recommend to you, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Anybody read this one, familiar with it? So, uh, yeah, a few hands out there. So good. What Nabil does is he really just brings you along his journey of being raised in a very devout Muslim family, and and his journey to beginning to accept the claims of Jesus Christ, that he in fact was God and, and coming into faith in Christ. And just the story itself is just listening to someone tell the story of their life and how they came to believe in Jesus is so rich. But one of the things that stands out to me as I read this, or stood out to me as I read this, was how really over three years, uh, Nabil is a pretty intellectual guy. And so he was just had question after question after question, and he began to really research the evidence for, well, did Jesus actually ever say he's God? I mean, as a Muslim, I believe he's a prophet, but did he actually say he was God? And he began to research that and look into that and look at texts like the one we're going to look at today in John chapter 10 to see, did Jesus really say that? And then to say, well, hadn't the scriptures been, haven't they been changed by so many people over so many years that it's really not reliable anymore? So that message coming from the Bible, can't really trust it. And he 
researched that and thought through that. And he did all this with a good friend who was helping him think through these things. And just again and again, he encountered questions. And then he researched the background of his own faith and some of the claims of Muhammad and whether or not they were what they appeared to be. And, you know, I, I won't do the spoiler. I mean, read the book. It's, real, it's really worthwhile. But here's what stuck out to me is that what Nabil encountered was that he, the, the evidence mounted to such a degree that he could no longer sort of not acquiesce to it. Like the evidence became so overwhelming, the case for Christ became so overwhelming for him, even while he didn't want to separate from his family or the faith of his family, but the evidence was there and it was so strong that he felt as if he, he was denying the truth if he didn't come to Christ. And it's such a fascinating journey. Now, each one of you has a different journey of how you've come to Christ, or some of you have not come to Christ yet. And so you're just, you're examining, you're perhaps skeptical, you're asking questions. That's the right thing to do. We want you to do that. But I tell you, I was so helped by this. And as I was looking at our text today in John 10, I couldn't help think, but think about Nabil's journey, uh, where what we're going to find today in John chapter 10 is we've come to the place in the Gospel of John where we've been hearing about the works and the words of Jesus for 10 chapters now. And remember that in John chapter 20, at the end of the book, we kind of skipped to the end at the the beginning of this whole series, and we said that John told us that his whole reason for writing this book is that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that in believing, you would have life in his name. That's John's thesis statement for the entire gospel. He's writing it all for that reason. And so interestingly enough, as we get to almost the halfway point now here in the gospel of John, John records a story about Jesus where he solidifies a a big claim about Jesus that he's been building to all along in these 10 chapters. He's been alluding to it and pointing to it. And now in John chapter 10, we're going to get kind of a summary statement of it that says this is the big claim that Jesus is making. So I want to look at that big claim today. Is that that good? Can we do that? I want to look at that big claim, but then he does something else. It's fascinating. He, He shows that Jesus says, now, here, if you don't believe the claim that I'm making based upon what I'm saying to you, go back and look at the works that I've done because they show you that I am who I'm saying I am. And so the second thing I want to do today is I just want to go back actually through the Gospel of John as Jesus is really instructing us to do and instructing the people he's talking to in John chapter 10 to do so that we might see something. And and for those of you who are not in faith today, I want to see if I can't show you what Jesus means when he says, look at my works and see who they show you that I am. We're going to do that today. So we're going to kind of look at some of the things we've already looked at. And then for those of us who are in Christ, those of us who are followers of Jesus, what Jesus is doing for us in this passage is he's setting a pattern for us of how we might share our faith with others. He's showing us something about how we might offer Christ to people in a way that's helpful, in a way that's instructive. So we want to do those things today. Those are kind of three things. We're going to look at the big claim. For those of you who are not in faith, I want to point you to the works of Jesus and show you how they really make a case for who Jesus says he is. And then for those of you who are in faith, who are are believers in Jesus, I want to help you see how God wants to embolden you and fill you with his spirit and empower you so that you might have the gospel coming out of your mouth more regularly. And you might do so in a way that is really helpful for others. So let's do those things. Let's look at John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22. We looked at the first half last week. George did a great job of explaining for us what Jesus was saying when he said, I'm the good shepherd and I'm the door. And now we come to verse 22 of chapter 10. Here it is. It says, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. 
And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews, remember that's the religious leaders, gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Okay, pause there real quick. Here's what's happened. Up to this point in John chapter 10, Jesus has been speaking mostly in figures of speech. He's been saying things like, I'm the good shepherd. Saying things like, I'm the door for the sheep. And so these religious leaders who've been hearing this are kind of just saying, all right, look, enough with the metaphors or enough with the figures of speech. Can you just tell us plainly? Like, just tell us, yes or no? Are you the Christ? Remember, that's the whole purpose of this gospel, right? To show us that Jesus is the Christ. And they're saying, is that you? We want to know. Now, the religious leaders have shown from their track record, they don't just want to know that so that they can worship him, if that's who he is. They want a reason to accuse him of saying something they believe is not true. Okay, so let's pick up again then. So they say, tell us plainly in verse 24. Now verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. There it is. That's the big claim. Verse 30 there is the center of this whole chapter, really, and particularly of this section of the chapter, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. He's making an astronomically big claim to say that he is one in being and in essence with God the Father. Right Now the response that you're going to see in a minute of these religious Jews who are around him is to stone him. Is to say we're going to pick up stones to stone you. And then Jesus is going to sort of do a little dance with them in the scriptures and go, well look in Psalm 82 it says this and I'm going to explain that to you. He's doing all that to buy a little bit of time because he knows it's not time for him to die yet. And they're ready to kill him. Right? And so he's going to, he's going to, he's going to do what Jesus does. He's going to be smarter than everybody in the room. Okay? He's going to outwit them and he's going to move his way out of that situation so that he can prepare for the time that he's actually supposed to come to the cross. But the major claim that he's making is about what it means to be the Christ. So let's just follow the text through here for a moment. The first thing we find is they're saying, look, just just speak in plain English to us. Tell us yes or no. Are you the Christ? And Jesus then answers, I told you and you didn't believe. Now that's an interesting thing for Jesus to say because if you've been with us through this journey of the Gospel of John, there's only been one time in the entire Gospel that he actually says, yes, that's who I am. Does anybody remember who that's to? It's not to the Jewish religious leaders. He doesn't reveal himself to them because he knows what's in their hearts. It's only to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, when she says, I know the Christ is coming, and he says what? I am, I who talk to you am he. It's the only time in the Gospel of John that he said, that's who I am. So when he says, I told you already, essentially, what he means by that is to say, my whole life and everything I've done points to this reality, but you can't see it. That's what he means by I told you already. Now, here's the real question. Because Nabil actually asked this question when he looked at this text. Is Jesus just a prophet? Or is Jesus actually something more than a prophet? And when we look at John chapter 10, verse 30, as Christians, we believe that Jesus is saying not just that he is one with God in, in the sense of being one in purpose with God, but that he is claiming to be one of divine essence with God, that he's claiming to be God. So in other words, they want to know if he's the Christ. 
But in their mind, the Christ is a human deliverer for the nation of Israel. And Jesus is saying, well, you want to know if I'm the Christ, and I'm going to tell you much more. Not only am I going to tell you that I'm the Christ, I'm going to tell you that the Christ is not just a human deliverer for one group of people, but the Christ is God, a divine deliverer for all people. That's what Jesus is claiming in this passage. But of course, when we get to John 17, one of the things that we're going to see is that Jesus is going to say to us, you, believers, should be one as I and the Father are one. Now in that passage, when Jesus says that we should be one, is it possible for me to be of one, one essence with one of you? Like Bruce, if, if today I said, you and me, bud, we're going to be one essence. Let's do it. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, it's not possible. Right? Can't happen. Doesn't matter how much we might want that to happen. So when Jesus says, you, believers, be one as I and the Father, one, he is in fact there saying, you should be one in, in unity of heart and unity of purpose. You should be uh, one in mission, in life, right? That's what he's getting at there. And so some would look and say, well, isn't he just saying the same thing here? He's not claiming to be God in verse 30 of chapter 10. He's simply saying he and the Father are one in that he serves the Father. He's of one purpose with the Father. But we as believers see that he means much more than just that kind of oneness here. But he's claiming that he is, in fact, God. That the Christ is not just human, but is divine. Here's how we know that. A couple things in this passage, and then a couple things throughout the Gospel of John. All right? So get your eyes with me into the text, and let's remind ourselves what we read. So the first thing that we see is in verse 28. In verse 28, after saying, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Then he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. All right, so that's a really big thing to say. No human being can say, I give them eternal life. Now, sometimes in the Gospel of John, when John refers to eternal life, he's referring to a qualitative type of life. In other words, the quality of your life. And he's saying, I give uh, the kind of life that is so qualitatively good and rich that we can call it eternal life, a life full of joy and meaning and purpose. Often, that's what John means when he uses the term eternal life. But here, he actually means not just, uh, not just eternal in the sense of quality, but in terms of quantity. And how do we know that? Because he said, I give them eternal life and they will never what, church? Perish. In other words, he's talking, quanti he's talking uh, quantitatively. It's going to go on forever, the life that I give. So it can be used either way. Here he's clearly using it to mean life that never ends. Life that goes forward in time forever is what I have to give. Now, do you know any human being who in their right mind can say, I can give the kind of life that lasts forever to you? No, because that's not something a human says. It's something God and only God can say. So that's the first evidence that Jesus here, when he says, I and the Father are one, is claiming to be God. That he's saying, I can give life that lasts forever. Now the second piece of evidence that we find here is in verse 29. So just keep going with me. Uh, so, sorry, second half of 28. And then he says, they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now I want you to notice something. There he's saying, his sheep, his people are in his hand. Now verse 29. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. So who has placed the sheep in the son's hand? The Father has, okay? The Father places the believers in the hands of Jesus, and he says, no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. But then look at the very next word he says. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. In other words, what he's saying is, he's giving us a good lesson in the Trinity here. God the Father, God the Son, 
God the Holy Spirit. He's saying, I and the Father are one divine being, but two distinct persons, so that I can say that they can be in my hand and at the same time be in who else's hand? The Father's hand, because we are one. When they're in my hand, they're in the Father's hand. When they're in the Father's hand, they're in my hand. Two distinct persons, one divine essence. That's what Jesus is getting at. So just right here in this passage, he's already told, showed us, right before he says, I and the Father are one, something of what he means. And it can't simply be that he's saying, I'm of one mindset with the Father. I'm of one purpose with the Father. He is claiming to be God. Now, just a couple other things just to, just to kind of backtrack. If that weren't enough here in this text, let's remember that throughout this gospel, we've already seen in John chapter 1 that John wrote, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we've seen that as the introduction to the whole story of Jesus. And then in John chapter 5, we saw Jesus say, all that the Father does, I am doing. In other words, what he says is, I have the ability to see what God is doing and then to do all of it. Is there any human being who can make the claim to say, I can do everything the Father does? Only Jesus. And then in John chapter 8, and we looked at this a couple weeks ago, he uses the divine personal name uh, of God when he says, before Abraham was, I am. Making a claim that at that point they want to stone him for as well. Because they understand it to be blasphemy. By the way, the reaction of the Jewish religious leaders, both in John 8 and here in John 10, is telling that they understand the claim that he's making. That he's not simply saying, I'm of one purpose with the Father. That he in fact is saying, I am one with the Father in that I am divine. Okay, so that's the big claim. And he's been building toward that all through the Gospel of John, trying to remind us and show us and reveal to us that this Christ that everyone is looking for is not simply a human deliverer who can lead you in a good path, but he is God in the flesh, which is absolutely radically altering to the way the Jewish religious leaders of the day expected him to come. All right, so that's the big claim, and we needed to see that because it's here in John chapter 10. But now, what happens next is that Jesus is going to say three more times. He's already said it once in the part of the passage we read. But he's going to say three more times, essentially, look, if you don't believe me in what I'm saying, then believe based upon what I've done. Just look at what I've done and ask the question, could anybody but God do this? And then determine whether or not you're going to believe me or not. I want you to see the mercy of this. Because in this passage, Jesus has just made this claim, I and the Father are one. They pick up stones to kill him, and then he stalls them with some discussion of what Psalm 82 says about you know, people and God, and has this whole conversation. And he does that, and then right on the heels of that, he invites them to believe. Can you fathom the mercy that you must have to have people ready to throw stones at you to kill you and to say, I'm going to be so level-headed... And so loving towards these people that want to kill me that I'm going to figure out a way to invite them to believe in me even while they're ready to kill me. That's what Jesus is going to do in this moment. He's going to say, I, want you, I don't want you to walk away in unbelief. I want you to believe. And so he's going to invite them in. And the way he's going to do that is he's going to say, look at my works. Look at what I've done. I know you don't believe what I'm saying, but look at what I've done. So friends who don't believe, can I show you what, what he's done? Can we just go back through? There are seven miracles that John records, and he could have recorded so many more, but he only records seven. And if you only record seven miracles out of hundreds that could have been recorded from the life of Jesus, 
do you see how important those seven might be? That there's an, a great intentionality in choosing. Now, in a very general sense, when we see the miracles of Jesus, what we have on display is just his power. I mean, just generically, right? It's like what the gospel writer is telling us, what John is telling us is Jesus has a kind of power that no one else has. It's, it's remarkable. And when you see what he does, you should be stunned by it. And so in one sense, you can read them all and kind of get the same message from all of them. The message that he has power. But each one sends a very specific message about how Jesus wants to win you. About what he's doing and what, he's, what kind of claim he's making. So that through the miraculous works that he does, you wouldn't just go, oh, okay, well he has power. But you would go, oh, he wants to do this in my life. Oh, he wants to do that in my life. And in doing that, in making a claim to do that, he's wanting to draw me or invite me in. So let's just look very briefly at each one, at some of the nuances. Now, here's the thing. I said we've come to this, kind of, this point in John 10 where John's going to point us backwards. And what he's doing is he's setting us up because next week, the seventh miracle of Jesus in the gospel, we're going to see when he raises Lazarus from the dead. And it's the biggest one. And so he's kind of going, let me give you a review of everything that's come before. So that next week when you come, I'm telling you now you have to come back next week. It's a total cheap preacher trick, all right? So he's setting you up so that next week when you come back, you go, oh, and not only those things, but also this thing? I'm astonished. So let's look at them. In John chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine. It's not just a neat party trick, Okay. You might think like, oh, like he's a really good, like he's a good friend. They run out of wine at the wedding. They need some more wine. He makes the wine. It's the best wine. Yada, yada. Do you know what's really taking place in John chapter 2? We touched on this when we talked about it. What Jesus is doing is he's saying he fills the, the water jars that he fills up and turns into wine are ritual jars for purification. In other words, he is saying in a kind of a subtle way, hey, the way you used to get purified, the way you used to get spiritually clean, this whole Old Testament thing where you'd offer sacrifices and those would, those would cover you for a while, but you had to keep doing it over and over and over again to make up for your sin. Yeah, I'm going to replace all those with my blood. I'm going to fill that, those water jars with my blood. And that's what's going to purify you. So when he turns water into wine, do you know what he's saying? He's saying, I can make you spiritually clean. Now, I know that we live in a day and age where a lot of us want to claim that there is no such thing as sin and that, you know, I'm, it, morality is relative and I can choose to do what I want and, you know, whatever makes me happy. And that's kind of the ethos of our day. But I would be willing to bet. I, I've never talked to a person that did not feel some sense of inadequacy or uncleanness in their spirit. No matter how much they tried to convince them that they could establish their own morality, there's always something that seems to be in the heart of a person that says, I feel guilty. I feel like I did this thing and it was wrong. Whether it's because I hurt somebody else or whether because it was selfish or what, whatever, there's always some version in any person I've ever talked to that sort of acknowledges that the relativism breaks down, always. It always comes down to, yeah, but I feel wrong. And I just want to say, well, why do you feel wrong if you get to determine what's right and wrong? Why don't you just say it's okay for you to do that and just keep doing it? But nobody does. People don't really do that. They go, I, actually, yeah, I, it just, I just feel wrong. It's something like in the bones. Do you know why that's there? Because you need to be made clean spiritually. You need to be washed 
I need to be washed. And what Jesus is saying when he turns water into wine is, I can wash you. And by the way, not just I can wash you and make you spiritually clean, I can take cold, dead religion and I can set your heart on fire with something brand new. I can take that internal coldness that you feel, that antipathy towards God, that animosity that you feel, perhaps that you were raised in an environment that was really legalistic and it was just, it was just a bunch of dead religion. It was just a bunch of moral rules and you tried your best to follow them and you realize it's just that way leads to death. It didn't do anything. You weren't good enough. You couldn't get there and it, just, it left you cold towards God. What Jesus is saying when he turns water into wine is, I can make your soul alive to God. I can, I can warm the heart that is cold and icy. That's what he's saying. That's a little bit bigger than just, I did a neat party trick, isn't it? Then in John chapter 4, Jesus heals a boy who's on the verge of death, and his father is begging, begging Jesus, heal him. Jesus doesn't even have to go where the boy is, and he heals him. And in that moment, we learn this. Jesus is filled with mercy and compassion because it's so important for us to ask the question, look, if Jesus can do this, that's great. But what if he doesn't want to? What if he doesn't love me? What if he doesn't care? What if he has no compassion, no mercy? What if he's all power and ability and no love? Then Jesus in John chapter 4, for a man who's probably, you know, been spending his time in a way that wasn't very God-honoring, Jesus is filled with mercy and compassion, looks on him with love, and heals his son. And then in John chapter 5, we see that Jesus heals a man who hasn't been able to walk for 38 years. But the key to understanding what Jesus is up to in this miracle is that he does it on the Sabbath. A lot of the things that Jesus teaches and that he does in the Gospel of John take place on really important days, on the Sabbath, on the Passover. The one we just read about happens during Hanukkah, the rededication of the temple, right, where they're celebrating the rededication of the temple. In some sense, what Jesus is saying in John chapter 10 when he says, I'm God, he's saying, I'm the true temple. The temple has been rededicated towards worship of God. I'm the place where the true worship of God happens. So he's saying something based upon the circumstances. Well, when he heals the man who hadn't been able to walk for 38 years, he does it on the Sabbath. So what's Jesus, what are we, what are we to learn from that? Well, here's what we're to learn. Jesus is saying this man had no rest before God. He was not at peace with God because of his ailment and his sickness. And when, I, and when I heal him, I'm not just showing that I can heal a person who can't walk. I'm showing you that I'm the one who can give you rest with God. I can give you rest with God. That turmoil you feel over not being spiritually clean, the thing I was referring to earlier, you feel that because you're not at peace with God, because you're not at rest. You feel anxious, you feel turmoil, and you feel it because you were designed to be at rest with God. You were made by him, created by him in love, designed for a relationship with him, and you won't find rest until you find it in him. You will not find rest in a really great work schedule. You won't find rest in a lot of accolades. All your striving, all your seeking, all your accomplishing, I mean, you type A people, this is for you, okay? You will not find rest until you find it in him. And that's what he's saying when he heals this man on the Sabbath. He's saying, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one who gives real rest. You come to me for rest. I'm the one who gives it. And then in John chapter 6, Jesus multiplies a few loaves and a few fish to feed thousands of people. 
And again, we could kind of go, well, great, neat party trick. You provide for people. That's awesome. But what's Jesus doing? What are we to learn? What Jesus is saying is you have a hunger in you that only I can fill. When Jesus multiplies the fish and the loaves, what he's saying is all those of you who are hungry, come to me and I'll fill you up. I will fill you. You know when you haven't eaten for a while, you know how hungry you feel? Right? Well, here's the deal. We starve ourselves spiritually in our society in particular. We are, spiritually, we are a spiritually starved society because we don't know where to get a good meal. We keep feeding ourselves. I mean, we don't, think we're, we don't think we're starving. We don't feel it because we've eaten a lot of empty calories. We've filled ourselves up with a lot of junk. But it doesn't actually nourish. It doesn't actually fill. It doesn't actually feed. And Jesus is saying, all that stuff will not feed you. But I can feed you. I can give you what you need. Right? That stuff on the computer you keep looking at, don't look at that anymore. That won't feed you. That combative nature that you have, that you keep just fighting everybody tooth and nail to like make a, carve out a place for yourself and stop doing that. It doesn't feed you. That, you think you're going to buy one more thing and you're going to feel full? It's not going to work. The car, the new outfit, the bigger house, like it's not going to fill you up. But I can. I can feed you. And you know it's true, don't you? Because you bought that new outfit and a month later you didn't like it anymore. And you bought that car and then the new model came out the next year and you thought, man, I wish I had that car. You thought, wait a minute, I thought this was going to be enough for me. And it just kept promising and not delivering and promising and not delivering and promising and not delivering. Can I just tell you, Jesus delivers on his promise. If you will take him, he will fill you. He will feed you with such a feast, you will never be spiritually hungry again. And again in John chapter 6 at the end, almost like a little private miracle that I just love. It's just for the disciples until they write it down and they share it with us. Because Jesus walks on the water. You know, this is totally a geyser on the campfire sort of a moment, Okay. Because he's sent, they're going across and they're rowing across the sea and they can't get there and they're struggling against the wind and Jesus has been out praying and you've got to think he's just like, I'm going to totally have a good time with this one, right? So he comes walking across the water and it says he was going to pass by him. He's just going to go by. Like, and I'm sure he was going to be like, beat you because he's a dude and that's what we do, right? But then they see him. They think he's a ghost. They start freaking out. The wind and the waves, they're just out of control. And what does he say? What does Jesus say? Don't be afraid. It's, it's me. Don't be afraid. In other words, what Jesus is claiming by being able to walk on the water is not just I'm supreme over all creation, although that's being claimed as well. He says, I take away fear. That's what I do. When I come into your life, all that anxiety, all that fear, I can take it from you. Like you're trying to figure out a way to not be afraid all the time. Just come to me. I'll take it. Now, it's a process in learning to keep giving it to him because we take it back, yes, sometimes. We keep taking it back as if somehow I'm going to handle my own fear and that's going to be good, right? So I'm just going to keep, you know, it's like, here's the deal. It's like saying, I'm afraid of the dark and I'm just going to keep walking into dark rooms until I'm not afraid anymore. And Jesus is going, I can just turn the light on. If you'll just trust me, I can just turn the light on. And you'll be good. You'll just be in the light all the time because that's, that's me. That's what I do. 
I'm not, I'm not making light of struggling with anxiety, okay? That's, that's a real thing. It's a hard thing. But stop taking it back. Keep giving it back to him. Just, just keep doing that. Those of you who don't believe, you don't, have to be, you don't have to be guided by fear. Fear of the future, fear of the unknown, you know, fear of provision, fear of security, fear of whether or not somebody's going to st- stay with you or love you. You don't have to do any of that anymore. You come to him and he's saying, I walked on water to show you you don't have to be afraid. Now, John chapter 9, last one that we've got so far. Ryan touched on this a couple weeks ago. He heals a man that's been born blind. No one, they say no one's ever done this. In the history of the world, no one's ever done this. What, what are we supposed to learn from Jesus healing this man born blind? Ryan taught it to us with excellence. Jesus is claiming in this miracle that he's able to give true sight. That he's able to, to give you. And what does true sight mean? I mean, that's kind of a nice idea. But what he's saying is, I can reorient the world for you in such a way that you can live with true wisdom. Like you can see your circumstances, see them through my eyes, and then navigate them differently than you ever would have before. How many of you, when you came to Jesus, started making choices that were different than before you came to him? You saw things that you never saw before. Oh my goodness, it's, it's astounding. I know this sounds weird if you're not in Christ, but this is what happens. And we're not claiming, by the way, it may even sound a little arrogant. We're not claiming we made ourselves see. We're saying that he came in and he changed the way we saw everything. All of a sudden, our eyes, we would have before said, oh, well, this is the right way. And then Jesus came in and we're like, actually, that's the complete wrong way. This is now the right way. And anyone who's in Jesus has had this experience. Where at one point they thought, I'm going this way. And you're like, and all of a sudden he opens your eyes and you go, well, that was dumb. Actually, I'm going this way now. And what didn't make any sense to us before, now we see it so differently that we can't help but go, well, this is clearly, this is the true way to go. This is what wisdom looks like. That's what Jesus is claiming when he opens the eyes of this blind man. He's saying, I can make you see like you've never seen before. I can show you things you've never seen. And when I do, you're going to live differently because you're going to understand what wisdom really looks like. It's absolutely astounding. And I, look, I can't give you that experience unless you trust in Jesus, okay? But I can tell you, as people who have had that experience, just sit a person down who's become a believer and say, what did you used to do that you don't do anymore? Or what changed in the way you saw things? And they will tell you, it was like night and day. I used to look at it this way, now I look at it this way. And there's no reason for that other than the fact that Jesus came in, he took up residence, his spirit came into me, and it just... It was like something fell off my eyes and they were open. I saw it differently. I get that that is not like the most sound argument to convince you, but I'm just telling you it is. It just is. All right, so the sum total of what we've seen. He cleanses, he warms the heart, he pours out mercy, he gives us rest, he fills us up, he takes away our fear, and he makes us wise. And in all of that, my hope is for those of you who don't believe, that I would show you what Jesus in John 10 is saying. If you don't believe me for my words, then believe me because of the works. Who else but God can do everything that I just explained to you? Is there anyone other than someone who is God who can do all that I just showed you? I would argue no. Now, for those of you who are believers, can I just tell you something? One of my prayers for us is that we would, we would more and more have the gospel on our lips, that we'd speak it with boldness, that we wouldn't be afraid. One of the things that can help you is to see what Jesus is doing here. And what he's saying is, friend, when you face anxiety or fear, what's one of the things that you should do as a believer? You should remember that Jesus walked on water. And then he said, don't be afraid. Tell that story to yourself. 
So guess what? The next time you're talking to a friend who doesn't believe and they're struggling with fear, maybe instead of trying to have some logical conversation with them, maybe, you can, maybe the thing that gets past sort of the block that's in front of us sometimes and gets into our heart and sort of warm, warms us to the truth is hearing stories of great miracles. So perhaps one of the things, one of the ways to share our faith is to do what Jesus is instructing us to do right here and to say to my friend who's struggling with anxiety, I know you feel fear. You know one of the stories I lean on every time I'm afraid? I remember that Jesus walked on water. And when he walked on water, one of the things he said when the disciples were freaked out and afraid was, don't be afraid. I can control all the elements of the whole human world. I control it all because I made it. I'm walking on it to show you that that's true. And I'm doing that to show you you don't have to be afraid. That's a story I go back to again and again. Maybe share that with them. Or maybe the next time... You recognize that someone just has like no rest whatsoever. I mean, they're just struggling and struggling and struggling to have rest. You go back to the story of Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath. And you go, you know why he healed this man who couldn't walk on the Sabbath? And it helps me to remember when I feel uneasy. I remember that he was saying, I'm going to give you rest. Or perhaps you say to your friend who's disillusioned and recognizes the latest thing they bought or the latest girl they dated or the latest you know, technology that they consumed or whatever it was, it has come up empty again. Maybe you point them back to the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Maybe you tell them that story. You say, yeah, I always go back to the story in my mind because you know what I'm supposed to learn from that? I'm supposed to remember that Jesus is what fills me up. He can satisfy any hunger I've ever had. And I keep looking to the wrong stuff. I'm just eating the wrong meal. I need to go eat the right meal. Maybe he's saying that to you too. Tell stories of what Jesus has done. When you share your faith, just tell stories of what Jesus has done. He's fascinating, he's amazing, he's wonderful, and he claimed to be God, and he said, I'll show you that I'm God through the works that I've done. So perhaps we should share those works with other people as we tell those stories. That's my encouragement to you. As we come to the table, we come to the table not of a human deliverer, but of a divine deliverer that's for all people. It's always good that we remember what we're up to as we come to the table, that we're not simply coming to partake of elements as a tradition, but we are coming to be reminded of the grace of God we found in Jesus Christ through his cross and his sacrifice so that we might have the mercy of God. So church family, Two reminders for you. One, I just encourage you today in light of God's word to you as you hold the elements in your hand to weigh and consider how God is inviting you, either if you're, if you're not a believer, to think about his invitation to you. As he invited the men who were prepared to stone him, he invites you. And for those of you who are in Christ, to think about who God is inviting you to share the stories of his miraculous work with. The second reminder to those of us who are followers of Jesus is this. We're told in the scriptures that when we partake of these elements, we're not to do so lightheartedly but with a a sober nature, which is to say in such a way that we consider our lives before the Lord. We hold them in front of him and we say, Lord, what would you change in me? And I submit to you anything that you would invite me to change. Any way you want me to walk that is different than how I'm walking, I commit myself to do that and to walk with you. So we hold those things before the Lord as we remember his cross. Friends, if you're not a follower of Jesus, we are so glad that you would investigate him with us today. But I'll invite you to to just let this be a time of observation for yourself. We wouldn't want you to say with your actions in partaking of these elements what you have not believed in your heart, that Jesus is king. 
If you would believe that and confess it, even now this table is for you. It's available and open to you. But until that's the case, we invite you to just observe. Just take in what God's people do as an act of remembrance of him. Let it be a time of consideration, weighing the claims of Jesus that you've just heard. Service, if you'd come.